Thank you all so much for being here. We have a, uh, an event-filled, uh, wonderful weekend planned. If you uh, don't have the entire roadmap to the weekend or the schedule for the weekend in your mind, uh, we still have plenty of these cards at the front table, which uh, on the back of them is the schedule and uh, other addresses as you might need them for the other events. Tonight, we just have one uh, session followed by a dessert reception. And then tomorrow morning, we will get back together at 9 a.m. for a light uh, breakfast. And then the, the second session will begin at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Um, so if you have any questions about that, you can find me or uh, Leanne Chambly, who's sitting in the back corner. She's got her hand lifted if you need any help. Um, if there's anything we can do to make your life more comfortable while you're here, I know some of you come a long way. If there's anything we can do to make your life uh, more comfortable, just come to us, and we'll tell you how to live without it. Uh, we'll help you out <laughs> help you out in that direction. Seriously, if there's anything we can do to serve you, please let us know. Our speaker this weekend, who we're so thankful to have uh, with us, coming all the way from uh, Vancouver, Washington. He's the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, Washington. He's written for several magazines and published many books, including In the House of Tom Bombadil and The Household and the War for the Cosmos. He's been a college professor, a commercial real estate investor, a landlord, a building contractor. He's on the board of New St. Andrews College. He's been happily married for over 30 years, and he has three grown children. Will you uh, join me in welcoming C.R. Wiley? All right. Well, it's great to be with you. And uh, I've uh, been looking forward to our time together. I'd like to... Uh, just give you a little bit of background to myself, maybe give you a sense of what uh, originally drew my interest to the subject that I'm known for, at least in certain circles, and that's the household. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, I grew up in an environment that was very, I guess, um, unusual for a guy like uh, me who stands uh, before church groups to, uh, to, to be from. Uh, it was kind of a bohemian world. Uh, my father was an academic, uh, was at University of Buffalo and then at Washington U in St. Louis. My mother was something of a, an art lover, kind of a leftist. And uh, so we were in, in kind of a uh, bohemian uh, kind of uh, cultural milieu, you could say, when I was a kid. Uh, what that meant was in the 60s, which is when I was a kid, in the early 70s, everybody was seeking, and uh, nobody was really finding. And when they were looking, they were looking for themselves, and the, the, the self that they were looking for was always someplace else, typically in California. That's where they had to go to find, <laughs> to find themselves. And uh, anyway, so that was the world I was part of. My, my folks, particularly my father, but well, both my folks were uh, Episcopalian. And uh, so the joke when it comes to Episcopalians is whether high or low, the status is always quo. I mean, it's a kind of a, kind of a, it's, it's, it's a kind of weird uh, denomination today, but at one time it was the establishment. When you thought about the Eastern establishment and you thought about church, it was basically the Episcopal church. It used to be called the Republican Party at prayer. That's no longer the case. But of course, Republicans in those days were a very different breed than we see today. Um, Anyway, so that was kind of the world I was part of. My father was a seeker, ABC, anything but Christianity, and got into a range of different things and finally ended up in Scientology. So I grew up in Scientology. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but everything you've heard about it that's bad is true. 
<laughs> That's all you need to know is just stay away. All the freaky people in Hollywood really are that freaky, and they're drawn to Scientology for a range of freaky reasons. But it's a, a place that just chews people up and spits them out, and it chewed my family up and spat us out. Uh, when I was, by, a, by the time I was about seven or eight years old, I was largely on my own. My mother was uh, addicted to powerful psychotropic drugs at this point, in and out of mental institutions, would run through the house screaming at different points. It was just a weird place to be. And so uh, I knew uh, artists and highly intelligent people. Um, my family is kind of connected to those worlds still, my extended family. And uh, so that's the world I came out of. And when our household broke up, I found myself in western Pennsylvania uh, in a blue-collar community uh, made up of people who just were salt of the earth folks, loved the Lord. And the uh, church that I came to Christ through uh, was, uh, you know, filled with those sorts of people. And I didn't go to church because I was looking for anything. I, I went to church because my best friend was the pastor's son. <laughs> so he had to go to church. You know, that's one of the things that happens when you're a pastor's son. You kind of have to go to church. And so, because he went to church, I went to church, and I overheard the gospel, and before you knew it, I believed it. And that's been the beginning, that was the beginning of a, a, of a turnaround in my life, and it's been really great uh, ever since. Like, you know, obviously there have been the challenges that anyone faces in the course of life, but uh, it's been, uh, you know, a real positive development. But when it came time for me to form a household with my wife, you know, I, I didn't have a, uh, it, it's sort of a personal um, body of experience in my own home life in terms of background to draw on. Uh, at the time, um, you know, I was uh, interested in, in a number of intellectual pursuits. I was teaching philosophy at the college level. So I, I decided to do a deep dive on the history of the household in the Western world. And it was uh, illuminating in many respects. And so many of the things I have to share are things that our ancestors would have taken for granted. Everybody from the Apostle Paul to Seneca to Confucius. <laughs> because the household in antiquity uh, had many different uh, expressions, but with, uh, but with a lot of things in common, re uh, regardless of what culture you were talking about. So if you were in, say, North Africa, if you were in China, if you were in you know, India, in America's households uh, had a number of things in common, no matter where you were. And um, so I ended up reading people like Xenophon and, and Aristotle. And like I said, um, but, you know, what they, were, what they were doing was looking at the way people lived their lives, and uh, they sought to understand how and why they were living their lives that way. It wasn't as though these thinkers in antiquity were cooking up something new and presenting it. What they were doing is observing the way people lived and recording it, <laughs> and, 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 and they sought to understand it. So one of the things that puzzled me as a young Christian was why we would read all, you know, lots of things in the Bible, uh, but always just kind of found a way to skip over the household codes. You know what I'm talking about. Colossians, Ephesians, where we're told to submit, you know, and, you know, do things in our households in a way that will glorify Christ and so forth. 
And I wonder, why don't, we, why don't we read about that? Why don't we read those portions? Well, it's because they're tremendously politically incorrect and they're very awkward. And we don't want anybody to feel awkward or uncomfortable uh, when they're visiting church. We want everything to just sort of be smooth and kind of, uh, well, uh, unoff you know, unoffensive. And so that's why those passages just simply aren't read, even in many churches that uh, ostensibly uh, are conservative and Bible-centered. And what I wanted to see is what was Paul thinking when he wrote those codes? I wanted to understand what Paul was thinking and why it made so much sense to them, but seems to be hard for people in the modern world to relate to. Why did it make sense at one time? Either it was, you know, there are basically two possibilities. Either this a set of teachings or these passages are so culturally bound that um, they really don't relate to anything except people at that time, or they're getting at truths that are true today and we're out of touch with. I suspected the second was the case. I have been told that the first was the case. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've looked into it, the more I've reflected on it, the more I'm convinced that we're out of touch in our culture with truths that are just simply true. And we need to get back in touch with those things. So that's the premise behind everything I have to say. And so today I want to talk about tonight, uh, the title of this talk is Against the Recreational Household. So, just so you know, I don't preach from uh, you know, a manuscript, but when I'm at a conference like this, I do use a manuscript, and there's a reason. The reason is, you might want a copy. <laughs> so I'll send you know, Dwayne a copy, a uh, PDF of this talk, and it'll be available if you'd like to have it. No charge. <laughs> so here we go, against the recreational household. Now, once upon, once upon a time, the economy lived at home. Households were for work, and the people who lived in them were put to work. There were family farms, of course, uh, and in those days, all farming was family farming. Fathers led the way, and wives and children and grandparents and hired hands joined in. There's a marvelous scene in Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. I don't know if you've seen that film, but at the very end of the film, all the village is back to work after the work of the samurai is done. So the American uh, remake of Seven Samurai um, is a Western um, Magnificent Seven. Remember the Magnificent with, with Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen and all those guys? Great, great flick. But that's actually an Americanization of Seven Samurai, which is kind of weird because Seven Samurai was, an, was a Japanese uh, adaption of American Westerns. <laughs> so you know, everything kind of comes around. But anyway, so they're all back in the rice paddies after the samurai have defeated the bandits, and everyone is singing. Men are beating out time on drums. Women are all shoving seedlings into the muck. Kids are toting and fetching. It's a beautiful scene, happy ending to the story that we seldom see in the world that we live in today where, where families just don't work together that way any longer. But it wasn't just farmers who worked at home. Bakers, smiths, cobblers, they all had their storefronts and the workshops were in the back. And upstairs was for sleeping and eating and playing and all the things we now call family time. Now if you go to certain parts of the United States uh, go to the old sort of uh, center of town that you see maybe in uh, towns that were uh, established during the early phases of the Industrial Revolution. You'll see this 
you'll see that that's the way it was set up. It was, upstairs wasn't just storage like it is today. It was actually where the families lived who owned the shops that were downstairs. Do you remember uh, Hiding Place with Corey Ten Boom? That film, that's actually a, 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 an image of what it was like. If I remember correctly, her father was a watchmaker uh, and uh, they, the shop was, they had a storefront and then they lived upstairs and there was a workshop in the back. So that's the way it was. But uh, the fact that people lived where they worked and did other things beside work shows that it wasn't all work. But in those days, work and rest was separated more by time than by space. Uh, there were the rhythms of the day and the week. Uh, one day in seven was set aside uh, for attendance at God's house, uh, where offerings were brought in and God's children sat down at his table for spiritual food. That's the pattern. So every day you'd you know, eat together, work together, and then the people of God would come into the house of God and eat together and receive uh, blessings that the Lord uh, had to, to uh, give to them through the preaching of the word and the receiving of the sacraments. Now, it wasn't heaven on earth, we know that, there were rebellious sons and unfaithful wives and tyrannical fathers and so forth. But we still have all those. <laughs> so let's not disparage what they had and we've lost. So in the beginning, it was all in the house, the whole economy. And I put it that way because economy, as I noted, is more than work. It's an order. The word economy is a compound word that comes to us from Greek. Oikos meaning house and nomos meaning law. An economy, then, was the law of the house. And it was overseen by the paterfamilias, the father of the family. Almost no one thinks about the economy in these terms today. For most people, it doesn't even live in the, in the house. It doesn't live at home. It's moved out into the open market, into the workplace, to the workstation. Gross domestic product uh, has practically no connection to domiciles, the Latin word for home is domus. And uh, except for new housing starts. And the only thing that the modern economy has for houses to do, generally speaking, is consume the goods that are produced someplace else. Now, there's something else to know, and that is throughout the world, both in the East and the West, households were religious institutions. So they were economies, and they were religious institutions. Pagan households served the gods, and connecting the god, uh, houses to the gods were the ancestors. This meant that households were part of something big. They were the low rung of a ladder that reached all the way up to the heavens. Now, Christians had more in common with their neighbors than you might suppose. Uh, there was the Ten Commandments, and the fifth commandment, of course, honor your father and your mother. But every role in a household was viewed through the lens of the Christian faith. For instance, here's Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of those notorious household codes that most churches refuse to read from the pulpit. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now let me just say something here that's fascinating about this passage, and that is uh, this promise of an inheritance to bondservants. One of the things that we don't uh, have really an, a, a, a good way of uh, uh, sort of putting into the proper framework to understand it is the, is the fact that in antiquity, what separated an heir from a bond servant was simply whether you got uh, an inheritance or not. In other words, everyone worked. There's a beautiful story from antiquity about a man named Cincinnatus. Anybody familiar with the city of Cincinnati, Ohio? <laughs> it's named for him. Actually, it's named for someone who was named after him. So George Washington was considered the American Cincinnatus. And so, in a strange way, Cincinnati it could have been called Washington. <laughs> but it's called Cincinnati because of Cincinnatus and because George Washington did what Cincinnatus did. He voluntarily left office when his job was done. Didn't hold on to it uh, in order to take advantage of his position. So what happened? So in antiquity, this I think was in the fifth century BC, if I remember correctly, uh, Rome was under threat. This is before it's an empire, it's still a republic. It's just kind of you know, scrapping uh, and struggling to survive. And things looked bad, and so the most um, promising leader, the best uh, commander uh, in the Roman Republic was a man named Cincinnatus who had five acres. And he worked that land himself with his sons and his servants. And when the Senate went out to him, he was plowing. There's, you know, wonderful art that shows the Senate asking this guy who's obviously covered with dirt and sweat <laughs> to come and save the city. <laughs> and he does. He becomes dictator of Rome, I think for like two weeks. Saves the city and says, I'm going back to the farm, goodbye. And he does. That is the image uh, that really sort of seared itself into the minds of people in uh, colonial America. And that's why they associated George Washington, who went back to the farm with Cincinnati. He, remember, there were some folks that suggested he could become the new king. And uh, he said, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But anyway, uh, the, the thing I want to get across here is everybody worked. We have this sort of image of vast estates where we have you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the fields. That's Rome at its zenith. But that zenith was also the point of its decline. In other words, when you look at, when you look at any civilization or institution, you, know, you, you, you idealize the peak. No. What you should be thinking about was what happened at the bottom to get it moving in the direction that would take it to its peak. What, happened, what was happening at the peak is what brought it down. That's what we see with Rome. That's what we see with us. 
What's happening now is bringing us down. What we need to do is look back to see what was the secret to the success of the people who uh, went before us. So an heir is somebody who has ownership, who receives ownership, and uh, everyone in a Christian household in the early church understood themselves to be an heir of what? The kingdom of God. Joint heirs with Christ. So everybody, no matter who they were in society, if they were, they were believers, they were joint heirs with Christ. And that's why Paul says here, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So now this brings me to the biblical teaching on the origin and nature of the household. Anybody remember the, the, the fellow uh, named Sigmund Freud? He was a 19th, early 20th century quack. <laughs> anyway, uh, he believed that the confession, the Christian confession, I believe in God the Father Almighty, was merely the projection of childish longings for security in an indifferent and hostile universe. But the Apostle Paul said it worked the other way around. We have fathers on earth because we have a father in heaven. Freud said we imagine a father in heaven because we have fathers on earth. What the Apostle Paul said is no, we have fathers on earth because we have a father in heaven. And uh, the reason I can say that is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here's how it reads. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, something gets lost in translation here, and it's Paul's wordplay. The Greek word for father, patera, is the basis for the Greek word for family, patria. In other words, in Greek, you can't say family without saying father. Let that sink in. So when Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, he's saying that the fatherhood of God is the basis for every family in the world. And human fathers are a reflection of that. So, uh, by the way, this is where we also get the words patrimony, which means inheritance. Patriotism, which means love of country, means love of the fatherland, right? And then, of course, patriarchy. So it isn't human beings who project a father into the heavens. Instead, it's the heavenly father who projects fathers and families down to earth. Now, as a practical matter, the nexus that forms a household in the biblical faith is the conjugal union of a man and a woman. So here's the seminal passage from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, uh, uh, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And, that rib, uh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The idiom, one flesh, has been understood for time out of mind to mean the issue of children from a conjugal union. 
but it also meant a common life, a common wealth, a common work, and a common future. So what happened? What I've just described for the last, I don't know, 20 minutes or so is a lost world. How it was lost is pretty well known among people who care to know, but it's remarkable how few people care to know. Generally, we're told that we've progressed and that nothing was lost that was worth keeping anyway. Progress has given us the Industrial Revolution and the revolution in thought that came before it. And those uh, revolutions drove productive work out of the house and into the workplace. Initially, whole families moved into the factories or the mines. Now, uh, you've seen all the photographs of you know, women with small children uh, next to the looms and the great mills and so forth, or the pictures of you know, boys covered with soot in the coal mines. I, I, uh, my last church, we sent a, uh, a mission team of young people every year to West Virginia, to, to Fairmont. And that's where the Fairmont mines were located. And we, uh, the camp that we would, would go to, to stay at was literally right over the mines. The mines went for miles under, under, the, uh, under the camp. If you went down into one of the mines, they, you, you might never get out. Well, you remember, Peter, you were there. <laughs> yeah, you were just right up the road in Morgantown. So, uh, but anyway, in the, in the mess hall there, in the, in the dining facility, there are pictures of the miners, and there's this marvelous picture of these boys. And these boys have got to be all of nine years old, eight, nine, ten years old. And, they, and they, they look like they've seen it all. They've got those looks on their faces that tell you these boys have probably seen men die. And they would go into the mines with their fathers. And they performed valuable service uh, because they, would be, they were able to get into places that grown men could not go. Now, what possessed these fathers to take their sons into the mines with them? Were they just cruel? Were they greedy? What, was, well, you know, what, what were they thinking? It's because that's the way it always was. Your sons went to work with you. Your daughters went to work with you. You went out into the field to plow. Your sons would go out and help. Uh, mothers would take their daughters down to the stream to do the laundry and all the things that they needed to do. It was just, this is the way it was. They, they had to be retrained to do things in a different way. And that's what initially the child labor movement, you know, in other words, the prohibition of child labor was intended to do. There was a breaking up of the household in the process. That's something that uh, is the other side of the story you're not told. Initially, basically, we're all, how, what, what is the narrative? Cruel robber barons, right? With whips. <laughs> driving boys and girls into factories and mines. That's, what, that's the image that we all have. That's not the way it worked. Dad took, it, took his sons. Mothers took their daughters. That's the way it was because that's the way it always had been. So um, now we know, we know the upside of the Industrial Revolution. There are a lot of things that are really great. I came to the, our meeting tonight in a product of the Industrial Revolution. I like cars. I like air conditioning. I like the internet. <laughs> I like antibiotics, and I'd like to keep them all. So I'm not a Luddite, 
I want you to know that. I'm not a Luddite. There are some really Captain Ludd or Ned, you know. The, anyway, Lud, the Luddites were the guys who didn't like machinery and would destroy them, destroy the machines. But anyway, um, I'd like to keep all that stuff, but I think we need to be, be realistic in our assessment. In certain respects, we've progressed, but in other respects, we've regressed. There is no free lunch. There's always a trade-off. And we've made some trades, and we don't want to own up to it. That's the problem. We don't want to own up to the fact that the progress over here has cost us over here. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this all up. Here's something from Alan C. Carlson's helpful study, Family Cycle, Strength, Decline, and Renewal in American Domestic Life, 1630 to 2000. So this is a quote from the book. This is taken from the book. Quote, in 1930, President Herbert Hoover created the President's Research Committee on Social Trends. Its 1933 report featured a chapter on family, authored by University of Chicago sociologist William Ogburn. He's a pretty big deal in the history of sociology. He contrasted the old family system, which had been, this is a direct quote from his report, the chief economic institution, the factory of the time, the main education institution, end of quote, with a new order where, quote, again from the report, the factory has displaced the family, end of quote. Gone from the home were the array of activities that define the subsistence family economy. Sewing, canning, baking, laundering, most cooking, health care, child care, care of the elderly, uh, security, education, amusement, recreation, and religious activities. And passed or were passing to industrially organized entities, be they corporate, state, or charitable in nature. American homes were, in the report, this is the description of the American home in the report, merely parking places, end of quote. For parents and children who spend their active hours elsewhere. So now you know, as early as 1933, the government considered your home a parking place. Productive stuff happens over here, recreation over here. Um, one of the things that's uh, noteworthy, I think, about this list of activities is security. Have you ever thought about the fact that once upon a time, the police were not a phone call away? If you knew that, how would it affect the way you looked at the world? If you, I mean, if you really knew that, it would affect your understanding of the need for a house to defend itself. So in Xenophon's Oikonomicon, uh, which is the book that, uh, he, in which he describes the household in antiquity, the father didn't stay at home and sent his servants out to fight. The father of each household went out to defend the community that they belonged to, their households belonged to. So have you seen Mel Gibson's uh, The Patriot? Remember the pattern that you see there where the father represents his household in the, in the, uh, the political uh, debate uh, that the community is engaged in and then goes out to, uh, to fight himself when he, he has no other recourse? That's the way it was 
for the vast majority of human history up until about 200 years ago. That was the norm. That's the way people lived and thought. And there's a portion in Oikonomicon where uh, Xenophon is describing the regular training of the f heads of house uh, in a Greek community, a Greek uh, polis. They were expected to be master horsemen, master, uh, masters in, uh, with regard to uh, armory, uh, the armor and uh, the, the implements of warfare and, and at that time. So it just, you, didn't, you just didn't simply delegate um, you know, the defense of your community or even the policing of your community to a bunch of guys that just only did that. So what are the consequences for our households? To build Babel, where everything is possible, we've had to deconstruct the household. And since that's where we used to live, we've deconstructed ourselves. To reach the heavens that we can see, we've had to trade into the heavens we can't see. Questions such as, is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? What does God say are no longer considered relevant? When was the last time you heard any politician raise any of those questions? Those were questions that politicians not all that long ago would ask. Uh, those questions are not only considered irrelevant, sometimes for some groups, they're even considered oppressive. And, for, uh, and concerning the human form, it no longer informs us since we'd rather be without form and void so that we can make of ourselves anything we please. Women no longer look to their bodies to find a purpose to serve, and men increasingly don't either. Now we're suspended in midair, cut off from God and our own bodies, and carried along by every wind of doctrine, blowing from places like Harvard or Wall Street or Hollywood. And this is one reason we look for meaning through buying goods that lose value. And it's why our homes have been transformed into recreation centers, which perversely have fewer members and more floor space than ever. Have you ever gone into old homes and just uh, been impressed by how little closet space there is? There's like none. <laughs> you know, so I, when I lived up in Connecticut, uh, the house that was right across the street from me was built in like 1757. That was uh, one of the newer ones. <laughs> but it was an old colonial village uh, Tallinn, Connecticut. Uh, but even during the Industrial Revolution, there just was, there were no closets. People had just a few sets of clothes, just you know what they needed to, to uh, go to work in and go to church in, and pretty much that's where it ended. Now, ironically, when the economy moved out of the house, some people thought it would be good for marriage. Since households no longer served a practical purpose, marriage could focus on love and personal fulfillment. But what actually happened? As we should have known, there were unintended consequences. I'd like to take a look at just five of them. The first of those is marriage has been reduced to a lifestyle choice. Hardly anyone calls it the foundation of our society. I remember when politicians would refer to marriage as the foundation of our social order. You don't hear that any longer. Instead, it's merely a matter of taste. And apparently fewer people have a taste for it these days as the numbers can be trusted. Across the world, the average age of a person getting married continues to go up, even as the percentage of people getting married goes down. 
Mark Regnerist, a sociology, sociologist at the University of Texas, documented that in 1980, 91% of Czech women were married by the time they were 30 years old. Today, it's just 26%. And this trend is the same everywhere. In 1980, 81% of Australian women, 66% of Finnish women, 76% of Italian women, and 81% of Dutch women were married by the time they were 30 years old. Today, it's between 20 and 30% in all those nations. And people are experimenting with marriage. There's so-called gay marriage, but that's almost passe. There's polyamorous marriage, an open marriage, a marriage to vegetation. I heard of a woman that married a tree. And marriage to inanimate objects. I heard of another woman that married a bridge. And many churches are eager to bless all of this. Even ostensibly conservative churches focus more on emotional satisfaction in marriage than on the tasks that marriage has historically performed. Two, children are increasingly believed to be useless or even bad to have. Fertility is plummeting around the world. Now this is greeted as something to celebrate by humanitarians. Let that sink in a little bit, just think about that. <laughs> Except in places where they're finally feeling the effects. In Japan, for instance, the population declined by 449,000 people in 2018, and the numbers are going up. It was over 500,000 last year. So every year, how, how, what's the population of, of the greater Raleigh area? Okay, so you lose half of Raleigh every year in Japan. Last year in China, 850,000 people drop in population. In other words, 850,000 more people died than were born. And it's just that We don't need to worry about China, folks. They're uh, in rapid decline, and they're in trouble, and they know it. They, they did the one-child thing, and now they regret it. Now they're saying, please, have kids, and nobody wants them. They can't, they can't get people to have kids. There are different countries in the world are paying people to have kids, and they won't have kids. Why? Because they don't think that it has any real connection to their own welfare. That's why. I mean, you know, have a kid for your country? Really? There was actually a campaign in Denmark called Do It for Denmark. Really? Is, it's not working. <laughs> In other words, there has to be some real connection between children and the welfare of a household in order for people to have kids. So let me just go on. Um, everyone knows that kids are expensive. In 2017, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimated that it will cost. Now, why did the U.S. Department of Agriculture <laughs> see fit to, make, to, to you know, conduct this study? But anyway, they did it. It will cost... In 2017, and with inflation, I'm sure you know it's gone up quite a bit, $233,610 to raise a child to 17 years of age. Besides being expensive, children are likely to hurt your feelings. Dogs are less expensive, and they're always happy when you come home. <laughs> By the way, in San Francisco, there are more dogs than kids. We know that. There are more dogs. Than I, I drive through Seattle. I drive through, I was, down in, I was down in Beverly Hills. I saw more dogs than kids. I saw extremely wealthy women with their foo-foo dogs 
I'm not joking. You know, they're getting out of the Maserati or the Bentley or whatever, and they've got their little foo-foo dog under their arm, and no kids anywhere to be seen for miles. What is going on with these people? Well, I think we know. Now, even when people manage to have kids, they treat them like pets or like accessories, like a Gucci purse or something. Uh, you know, things to lavish yourself upon but not depend on. And like a self-fulfilling prophecy, when these children reach adulthood, often they can't be depended on. So number three, post-familialism is on the rise. Since marriage and children are believed to be more trouble than they're worth, people are just opting out of beginning a family. Something has emerged that would have been considered an absurdity in the ancient world, the single-person household. I see it especially with middle-aged women who work for large corporations. Many are divorced, and since many of them have exchanged family uh, for a career, their social needs are all met at work. Rather than challenge this or even question it, some evangelicals, especially in coastal cities, justify it. And uh, they do so by citing the Apostle Paul's reflections on the advantages uh, he enjoyed as an unmarried apostle in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Oddly, this gets packaged with the Reformed doctrine of the priesthood uh, of all believers. So now, in the Protestant world, instead of priests and nuns getting married, lay people don't because celibacy is a good thing for XYZ megacorporation. The fourth thing is we're sliding into socialism. Concurrent with these things and acting both as a cause and an effect is the growth of the welfare state. It's an effect because people don't have families to fall back on. And it's a cause because people think they can always fall back on the welfare state. Naturally, this leads to childless people free-riding the system because the incentives encourage it. But in the long run, the situation is unsustainable. When a growing number of people depend on a system that has fewer and fewer people paying into it, eventually it goes bankrupt. Did you hear the recent announcement concerning when Social Security will be insolvent? I think it's 2035. Right about the time I'll need it. <laughs> right? So, you know, uh, now I don't expect it to collapse overnight. I, I, I don't think that's the way it's going to play out. I think that what is, what's going to happen is they'll, they'll attempt to raise, you know, the tax rate, uh, which would be really crazy considering that. When, so if you're self-employed, you, know, you actually know how much Social Security costs. If you work for a corporation, you get, like, you only see half the picture. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. A self-employed person has to pay about 15% on everything he or she earns. And it goes right into Social Security. If you work for a corporation, you only see half of that, so 7.5%, which goes to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, that kind of thing. And your employer matches it. So you don't see that part. Now, when the employer hires you, do you think that that's what the employer has in mind? This person is going to cost me this or that? Well... They're thinking about you in the same way that a self-employed person thinks about himself or herself. So if you raise that, it's already way above where it started. How, I, I can't remember, but it was back in the 40s when it was instituted. I think it was like a 3% or something like that. So it just keeps going up and up. But they're also going to have to bring down the benefits. They're going to have to give you less, and they're going to require you to wait longer to receive your benefits because people live longer. So that's the way I think it's all going to play out. But eventually, you've got to have more people paying in than 
then draw out in order for it to survive. But that's the situation we find ourselves in. And finally, Christians are losing the ability to think like Christians. And this is what I mean. The language of our faith is largely drawn from the productive household. God the Father, the only begotten Son, joint heirs with Christ, a bride adorned for her husband, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All these things tell us what the faith is and how to live it. What is Christianity left with when we no longer live in households? I think we're beginning to see it. It's just a personal relationship with Jesus, and we're not sure what families are good for or even churches anymore. So what do we need to do? I think we need to do at least two things. First, we need to get back to the productive household. And second, we need to recover a transcendent point of reference. Now, what I have to say from here on for the, uh, during the, uh, this talk has to do with the first of those things. Tomorrow, I'll talk about the second. So that means I'm not going to talk about love languages or anything like that. Instead, I'm going to talk about making your household productive. And since this is a practical matter, I'll talk about what we've done at my house. Not because we've lived up to the, to the ideal. No one ever lives up to their ideal. Just, you know, it's just, a little, just so you know, that's just simply the way it is. You're not a hypocrite <laughs> if you don't live up to your ideals. Your ideals are what give you some point of reference, something to, to, to pursue, some, something to try to make real in your life. But you always fall short. It's just life. Get over it. <laughs> it's just the way it is. So uh, I want to talk about those things uh, because the effort is, is worth uh, uh, performing even when you don't fully succeed. So let's think a little bit about work. I wrote a book called Man of the House, and essentially that's a, a book that talks about uh, the uh, households that we see in antiquity, and uh, I tried to uh, sort of draw some lessons from those ways of thinking, those works of literature and so forth, everything from Seneca to Xenophon to Aristotle to the Apostle Paul. They agreed about a lot of stuff, and I try to, uh, in that book, help fathers think about how they can do those things that they were uh, required to do and asked to do uh, in antiquity in our world today. Now, I want to begin with what may be the most politically incorrect thing that Xenophon said, and that is this. When it comes to work, men and women are different. I know that's a pretty terrible thing to hear. I hope I haven't triggered anybody. <laughs> and because men and women are different, they are made for different things. They have different roles, and they work together. So there's a natural division of labor between men and women, and that makes them depend on each other. Our ideal of independence is really messed up our minds. Success is not knowing how to live without the opposite sex. Success is knowing why you need the opposite sex and know how to work with the opposite sex. That's success. Because interdependence is the goal, not independence. In other words, um, when someone says, I don't know if I could live without you, it ought to be like a real statement of fact. <laughs> it's not, not like a greeting card thing, you know. You know, I don't know what I'd live with, do without you. Oh, isn't that sweet? You know, no, I think I don't, know, I don't know how to do all the things you know how to do, and if, if you weren't here, I'd die. 
that, that's kind of the, the ideal. So there are things that wives know how to do that husbands don't know how to do, and things that husbands know how to do that wives know how to do, and they need each other. They need each other. They depend on each other. Interdependence is the goal. And when it comes to children, uh, they should be brought into the work as soon as possible. The idea that childhood is nothing but a long period of preparation for the labor market sends the wrong message to kids. It says that, that important things happen somewhere else. Someday, when you're all grown up, you'll get to do important things somewhere else. Uh, it also says they have nothing important to contribute to the household economy now. And I think that's one of the things that none of us want to communicate to our kids, but I think we uh, inadvertently do communicate that to them when we don't give them ways to contribute to the household economy. So we want kids to know that they're important, that they contribute from the start. Now, I'm not talking about you know, sending them out into the fields to pick cotton for 18 hours. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm just talking about finding age-appropriate ways for children to be involved in the work of the house. Now, as a pastor, I had something of an advantage uh, when it came to this because uh, a parsonage generally works on the old model. Think about it this way. If, uh, if your pastor was candidating to serve your church, what would the, what would the, you know, the, the committee that, you know, that was doing the work of pulpit supply or pulpit you know, vetting uh, for a pastor uh, ask? Well, generally, where do you go to school? That's one of the things that's important to ask. And then, do you believe in everything in our confession? That's another important thing. And then, tell me about your wife. Now, we would say, hey, a perfectly appropriate question. We want to know about your wife. If you were at IBM applying for a job, and they were to say, tell me about your husband, or tell me about your wife, you'd probably be on the phone uh, with your lawyer at that point, saying, what business is it of yours, what my, my, my spouse is, uh, is up to, and what the, my spouse is like. But when it, when it comes to the, to the pastor and his family, we all know it's a package deal, right? Uh, you know, you, you really do have a lot of expectations for the pastor's wife and the pastor's kids. So, it's a, so you want, what you want is a, a man whose household is in good order, his wife is at his side and believes in what he does and is doing everything she can to contribute to it. So that's, that's the, the model. And that's the way it used to work for every calling, not just pastors. So pastors are kind of a throwback. We're sort of like, you know, Neanderthals or something. <laughs> you know, we, we, live on the old, we, we live by the old model. Um, so I want to do a little more uh, reflection on the specifics, though, with regard to my own household. So uh, as you know, I'm an author and an illustrator uh, and a traveling speaker. Uh, and uh, has been noted I was a college professor for about a decade. Um, I was, uh, I've done other things. I'll get into those things in a minute. But my wife is a piano uh, and music instructor and a hairdresser. So I, I married the beautician who plays the piano. So I literally, that's who I married. And we have studios at home, and the people are coming through the house constantly. So I have my own writing and art studio. I'm an illustrator. I don't think I mentioned that. Yeah, I did. And then my, my, my wife, of course, has piano students and so forth. But we have between five and ten people uh, who come to the house on any given day for different reasons to meet with one of us. 
Our household has also uh, served as a kind of skunk works for the businesses started by our kids. So my oldest son owns his own audio engineering business in Nashville now. He works for you know, uh, institutions like, like Lifeway and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, before that, he worked at Wheaton College and Fuller Seminary, but he got it started home and was producing music there before he got into doing it professionally uh, for large institutions and so forth. Now, my second son is a steel worker, uh, and in the evenings, he's a blacksmith and furniture maker. Um, uh, so he, he started that at home, and he built uh, his first forge in our garage. Almost burned the house down once. He actually made a torch, like you see in the films, you know, like the burning torch. Kind of got out of hand. <laughs> but he was able to take care of it. He even cast uh, the wedding rings for him and himself and his wife. So did you ever see that episode of uh, Parks and Recreation where Ron Swanson makes the wedding rings out of a, out of a sconce? My son actually did that. It was out of gold, made him out of gold. He, he, he uh, created uh, you know, the vacuum chamber, you know, he did all the different things that he needed to do. But anyway, he's, he's very gifted. Then my daughter, uh, uh, she just got married, and uh, but uh, when she was uh, younger, she was a baker, and she would come home from college. She would she would literally just put up on Facebook or social media, "I'm coming home," and she would have orders that would keep her busy for like days. You know, where she was making all kinds of stuff for people. And uh, before she met the fellow that she ended up marrying, there were all these suitors who would buy lots of baked goods from her. <laughs> I always thought it was a lot of fun. You know, they'd come over. I had this one guy, he came over and he bought like $100 worth of baked goods, you know. And he gave her a $100 tip. And after he left, I said, sweetie, we got it made. <laughs> you know what you do is you get all these guys on the string here and you just keep drawing them in, you know, get all these tips. She didn't think it was nearly as good an idea as I did. So I suppose that the reason our kids uh, have that entrepreneurial spirit is because they saw it all the time, and uh, we encourage them to pursue their various gifts and callings. Uh, and we also told them that when they work for other people, and it's a good thing to work for other people, uh, but the thing you need to keep in mind is you need to think of uh, your, your labors in the service of other people as a kind of apprenticeship, a way to sort of develop your skills and knowledge, not just simply as a way to kind of make some money. Now, making the money is obviously good, but if you have that frame of mind, you'll go through life learning and developing skills that may serve you uh, more directly uh, if you ever go out on your own someday. But it'll also make you a whole lot more marketable. So now I think the, the biggest thing that really impressed all this in our kids, is, uh, especially our boys, is our commercial real estate. At one time, we had 18 tenants. And the boys helped with renovating the apartments and maintaining the properties. And sometimes I paid them. <laughs> uh, at other times, I just told them, these apartments will help pay your way through college and trade school. And if all goes according to plan, someday you'll inherit them. So I was talking to them about their inheritance as they were helping me rip out sheetrock. Someday, son, this will all be yours. <laughs> Thanks. So I, I was also a home improvement contractor for a while, and the boys helped me with that. So this brings me to property. Uh, as you can see uh, from what I've talked about, uh, property is what you work with and what you work on. Uh, and if you don't own productive property, you work for someone who does, unless you work for the government. So if you work for the government, that's kind of a, its own category. But 
when you are employed by somebody else, and it could be a corporation, so you know, a, a legal entity, which is a, actually a legal person, in case you didn't know, you're working for the party that owns the property. And like I said, that's fine. But you ought to uh, look for ways to own your own. Doesn't mean you necessarily start your own business, but it's great to have something you can say that's, that this is real property and it belongs to, to our household. So that means I'm not talking about toothbrushes or even stuff you could liquidate on a garage sale. I'm talking about assets that give you a living and keep on giving. Anything from land that you can raise food on to intellectual property. For example, my wife invented a product called the 50-Day Dash. It's a poster that you can use to chart practice time on the piano over 50 days. And uh, she copyrighted it. And now you can buy it in a, in a music store uh, in Connecticut. And as you know, I've written books. Uh, and uh, that's another form of uh, productive property. And I, I talked about the commercial real estate and so forth. The thing to note about uh, productive pro property is it's marvelously variegated, and you can turn just about anything into productive property with imagination and hard work. I think that our imaginative powers are a reflection of God's image in us, and we're sub-creators in the sense that we can't make things out of nothing, but we can make things with value from things that God made out of nothing. So we're sub-creators in that respect. So we exercise dominion in the way that God exercised dominion, but in this sub-sort of um, set, uh, sort of as a subset of a larger story of creation. So let me give you an example. Take silicon, the stuff that we make computer chips from. Now, I don't know a whole lot about that, but uh, from what I'm told, it's essentially sand. So, uh, with ingenuity, hard work, and risk, there are people who've turned sand into laptops and smartphones. Think about that. That's pretty remarkable. And productive property, as I noted, is uh, the fruit of God's image in us. Because he made valuable things, we can make valuable things too. Now, years ago, productive property kept me financially afloat when I resigned to pastorate in a denomination that I felt was drifting into some dangerous waters. Now, often when pastors are faced with the choice of paying the mortgage and obeying their consciences, their consciences become sort of pliable. <laughs> I've noticed this. But, but productive property can support you and your family as well as support your backbone, and that's what it did for me. Uh, and that's not just true for pastors. I think that this is something that we've lost sight of. So the founders of our country believed that the ownership of productive property was essential for the proper exercise of citizenship. And that's why initially the franchise was limited to property owners. Not because they were mean, but because they thought if you're responsible for taking care of something of value and making certain that it continues to be valuable, then you've developed the virtues necessary to be a good steward of the community's assets, right? So that's what was behind the thinking. Now, productive property, last of all, uh, is something you can leave behind. Um, there's a proverb that I've heard you sort of interpreted in some amusing ways. 
But the proverb reads, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Let that sink in for a little bit. Now, the funny sort of interpretation that I've run across is, you know, grandparents who say, well, my kids are worthless, but I'll give the you know, inheritance to the grandkids. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the logic. The other part of it that I think is perhaps something we lose sight of is that when we look around and we see the prosperity of the wicked, we ought not to feel resentment. We actually ought to say, thanks. That's great that you invented that. <laughs> We're going to inherit that someday. Remember, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The meek shall inherit the earth. So, something to keep in the back of your minds that the promised land, remember the promised land when the Israelites went to inhabit it? They moved into cities that they didn't build. They enjoyed the fruit of, you know, the, the vines that they didn't plant and all that kind of stuff. That's the same for us. So that's the proper way to think. We should not have any envy or resentment when it comes to the prosperity of people who are unbelievers. We should say, thank God for it. Anyway. Now, uh, people, when they think about what they leave behind, uh, sometimes will say, well, you can't take it with you, and that's true. And that's just as well because you won't need it where you're going. <laughs> but generally, when people say that, they say it somewhat dismissively as though, well, it wasn't worth much anyway. But is that true? If it's been good for you, it can be good for the people you leave it to. You need to think about just how to do that, though. Now, a household should be a line that runs through the generations. And this is about keeping the line moving not ending the family concern. So if the things that keep the line moving forward to the third generation include productive people as well as productive property, well then we ought to keep the second generation in line if the property is going to make it to the third. In other words, the old statement, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, really shouldn't be something that's a truism. That should be an exception. We ought to find ways to raise children who are able to rise to the occasion and be good stewards of the resources we leave them. That's what we really ought to do. And I might talk about that a little bit. Um, now, I can't guarantee anything, but I suspect that if making your kids productive will help, make, uh, will help them uh, make productive homes of their own someday. And if your line does come to a premature end, it may be because your kids have come to think of themselves as the point of it all, rather than just a point on the line that leads to the real point of it all. And what is the real point of it all? The glory of God. So our households should be ordered to the glory of God over the generations, not just for the moment. So go home and put your kids to work. And if what I say, <laughs> yeah, all these fathers and mothers are like, yeah, I'll go for it. Actually, I've had, you know, I've, I've given this talk a number of times, and I've had a lot, a lot of young kids come up to me and thank me, because they actually, a lot of young people are looking for ways to be part of something bigger than just, you know, homework and, and social media. They want to feel like they're contributing to something that's worthwhile. And if, if what I've said bears any resemblance to the truth, you'll give your kids something worth keeping, 
and that means you'll probably keep your kids too. So thank you.